Good morning, church. Good to have you all here to worship together. Grab your Bibles, if you would, please. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We'll bring one to you. I want to make sure you have that in front of you. Uh, we don't put the scripture up on the screen. We'll put the reference where you can find it. Uh, but something is, I guess, let's call it just my, my roots of how I grew up in a church. I loved hearing the Bible pages sort of move and getting my hands active, uh, seeking through God's Word. And so that's the way I was raised, that's the way I preach. So grab your Bibles and turn to Romans, uh, actually chapter 7, I think I said chapter 8, chapter 7 is where we're going to start. I don't know about you, but I've run into people before and I sit there and say, I don't know if I can really relate to this person right now. I don't know if you've ever had a moment when you have a conversation with somebody or you're sitting there and... They start talking to you, and you're like, I don't know if I can even relate to this person right now. They seem too perfect. They seem too holy. They seem too smart. They seem too athletic. They're way up here, and I'm feeling down here right now, and you sort of get in that conversation with that person. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, Maybe they start talking physics and the computation of numbers and the mechanics of a vehicle or the rules of a sport, and you're sitting there looking at them, and all you hear is blah, 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 blah. And you're thinking, I have no idea what they're saying right now. I wish I was as smart as them, or I wish I understood what they were saying. Maybe that's not your expertise. You're like, if they could just talk what I like to talk about, then I could really show them I'm pretty smart. Maybe you just can't relate to them in that moment. Let me tell you something. I feel that way sometimes when I'm reading the letters from Paul. When I'm reading through Romans or certain books that Paul wrote, sometimes I'm like, oh, Paul, that's really deep. I'm just going to go back and read something from the Old Testament like Joseph or Moses or Noah. I get those stories. I like the stories about Jesus who's walking along and, you know, and he spits in mud and slaps it on a blind man's eyes and all of a sudden he can see. That's a cool story, okay? But when Paul starts getting really deep, I'm like, wow, Paul, um, got to read that like five more times and then get maybe a commentary and see what he had to say about it, another theologian to make sure I'm understanding this. And, uh, but that's, that's why I, I feel because here's a guy who, in my opinion, he's super religious, right? And he's a deep theologian and he's a leader and uh, he writes these books. He talked, he talked to Jesus He persevered through the tough times in life. Um, He had incredible boldness. And then he has these deep theological discussions. I mean, if if he was an Avenger, okay, a superhero, he's Superman. There's nobody defeating him, okay? And he's just like above all this stuff, right? Nobody's stopping him. So when I get to Romans chapter 7, and he's discussing the law and man's relationship to the law, and, and I'm reading through this, I'm thinking, oh, man, Paul, I need, what I need to do is I need to walk with you to understand more what you're saying, uh, to make some sense here. And he continues uh, to discuss about the law and how we're no longer bound to sin. And he continues about how the law reveals my sin in verses 7 to 13. But when I get to verse 14 of chapter 7, when I get to verse 14 of chapter 7, all of a sudden it's like, oh, I can relate to Paul. I get what he's talking about. So I want to read these verses to you, starting in verse 14. And um, maybe you'll be able to sit there and say, oh, yeah, I can relate to Paul too. Here we go. The law is good then. The trouble's not with the law, 
but with me. Because I'm sold into slavery with sin as my master. I don't understand myself at all. For I really want to do what's right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do the very thing I hate. I know perfectly well that what I'm doing is wrong, and my bad conscience shows that I agree that the law is good. But I can't help myself because it's sin inside me that makes me do these evil things. And I know I'm rotten through and through so far as my old sinful nature is concerned. No matter which way I turn, I can't make myself do right. I want to, but I can't. And when I want to do good, I don't. And when I try not to do wrong, I do it anyway. But if I'm doing what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing it. It's the sin within me that's doing it. I'm sitting there saying, Paul, I can so relate to you on this one. I I get that. I I do things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I want to do, and sometimes my discipline just isn't there. Paul, I I get you. I understand. Church, are you following me on this one? Do me a favor. Just fill in the blank. Don't say it out loud, but sort of fill in the blank. Okay, I'll give you the first part of the sentence. I should have... I'll fill in the blank. Or how about this? Why did I just fill in the blank? You know what I'm saying? I just did something I shouldn't have done. Why did I fill in that blank? Where's Paul Lingo right now? Not Ringo. Lingo. Okay, Paul Lingo. That's his terminology. He's like, I'm doing the things I don't want to do, and and I, I don't know why I'm doing this, but look in the next verse, verse 22. As we read this, he goes, I love God's law with all my heart. So he's having this discussion about sin in his life, doing the things he doesn't want to do, not doing the things he should do. And he's like, oh, the sin within me. Then he goes, here's the thing, though. I just, I love God's law with all my heart. Could you agree with that? Paul, I'm still relating with him here because I love God's word, too. I love what God has to say to me. I truly want to live for Jesus Christ. I desire to worship God and God alone. I enjoy coming here to church, singing songs of worship with other Christians. Okay? Nothing better than that. I love it. Because I'm going to say this, but there's another power within me that is at war with my mind. There's another power within me that's at war with my mind? That word war, it's a Greek word that basically pictures a military expedition. Just, just in, in, imagine seeing a huge army all geared up, all their equipment, all their swords and spears and bows and arrows, full military gear, and they're leaving on a military expedition. They're going out to battle, to attack, to destroy. They're not defending. They are attacking. They're going to take the field against. They're going to go and oppose whoever it is they're going to try and defeat. This is the only time we find this Greek word in the New Testament. Looked elsewhere, couldn't find it. And Paul uses that word in this frame of mind. There's a power within me. It's at war. This is a serious word. I don't know if you've ever been in a military battle. I don't think we have any veterans in here, do we? Am I missing anyone? So none of us firsthand can say, I've, I've been there. Now, we have relatives. We have friends who have fought. We have maybe grandparents, great-grandparents who have fought. Maybe you've heard the stories. I've got a father-in-law that shares stories. 
You know, I've watched old war movies, and I've, I've, I've uh, seen recent war movies. Uh, there's a movie, Saving Private Ryan, that when it first came out, uh, they were interviewing veterans, and they said the first 15, 20 minutes of that movie, which is pretty gruesome and, and probably shouldn't watch, he goes, the, the veterans were saying they did a good job of depicting what it was like to be there. It was actually probably a little worse. And if you have seen that movie, you're like, it was horrible. And it was worse than that. We have maybe have heard stories. The bottom line is, it's not pretty. It's rough. It's horrific. It's life-changing. You know, we can read the battles in biblical times and read through Old Testament and what happened. And, and they are pretty intense. Merciless, cruel in how they defeated their enemies. There were beheadings and so forth. And even in sport, Paul talks about in 1 Timothy, when he says to train yourself unto godliness, he used that word train, which is gymnazo. And gymnazo is where we get our word gymnasium. And when he used that word to train, there was only three sports that trained in the arena in a gymnasium. Wrestling, boxing, and pancreation. Basically, it's like ultimate championship fighting to the next level. So when these guys train, because they would step into a ring, they could go ahead and, and, sorry for this, but they'll pop out eyes, they'll bite ears. What Mike Tyson did many years ago was nothing new, okay? Break ribs, pull hair, yank hair, break arms, whatever it took to win. And here's what would happen. Usually, if there would have been like most schools have like a Hall of Fame, they got all the athletes who had first team and all that. Those people would be, their faces would probably be a little deformed, maybe missing an ear, eye, you know, covered. Or because to win took a lot out of you. To lose, you wouldn't be up on the wall. You were actually buried six feet under. So if you knew you're going to go compete in a sport today, step into that ring, knowing that if you lose, you're, you're probably dead. How hard do you train? You don't want to lose. Paul used that very word when he said, train yourself unto godliness. He goes, listen, it is important, it is serious that you train. This is intense. And so he uses a similar word of intensity in saying, there's a war going on inside me right now. And he does it, you know, as he uses this word once, he's, you know, he's basically telling us, this isn't easy. Living victorious, making the right choices, being holy, it's a battle. And battles, when that takes place, there will be casualties. And the battles in our mind, our perceptions, our understanding, our, our thinking, our judging, our determining. The intellectual part of us struggles with what is right and wrong. And you see the battle lines getting really fuzzy today. Well, that's right or is that wrong? Well, I think somewhere in the Bible it might say, oh, all of a sudden truth gets twisted and the line gets pushed back and a new line is drawn. What is true, what God claims is true today is no longer politically correct, and so we just sort of do whatever makes me feel good. The absolute truths that God has laid out are not absolute anymore. And when all that happens, guess what happens? A battle starts taking place within our mind. Is that really right or wrong? I don't know. We have a hard time judging and determining what is true, what is false. Paul goes on to say in chapter 7, this power makes me a slave to sin that is still within me. A slave? Here he goes using another strong word. 
This Greek word means to make captive, to lead away, to bring into captivity. So when you are captured, if this was an actual battle, if you weren't put to death, here's what happens. You are made a slave. You are captured. You're taken out of your home. Comfort, good feelings, peace, joy, that's gone. You're now under the hands of your captor. You are a slave to that captor. You will probably be abused and beaten in a place that is not friendly or conducive to your growth or comfort. And again, Paul's saying, listen, there's a battle taking place up here, and it is going to be tough. And if you let sin capture you, you are going to be under his power. And it is not a good place to be. And I believe our spiritual opponent wants to capture our mind, wants to capture our thoughts, wants to take hold of our dreams and our understandings. And he wants us to look at sin and he wants us to feel worthless and guilty and full of defeat. Now, for some of you, you can remember the good old cartoons, the Tom and Jerry cartoons, okay? Some of you are like, oh, I love Cartoon Network. I'm so glad they still have that around, right? And if you remember those cartoons, they always had like the devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other. Remember those cartoons? And it's like the guy's like, I wonder what I should do. And then poof, there goes a little devil, poof, there goes a little angel. And they had this conversation. Well, I don't think you ought to. Well, I think you ought to. You know, they have these little voices going on. Like, yeah, you're right. You know, as, as weird or as funny as that may be, that's sort of a picture you get that's going on. But here's the thing. It's deeper than that. It's deeper than that. It's not a cartoon. It's greater. It's internally desperate. Because look what Paul says next. Oh, what a miserable person I am. This is tearing Paul apart on the inside. He knows that something's going on here. You know, he's battling the truth. And he says, what a miserable person I am. This truly stinks. I mean, if you're a child of God and you mess up, it should bother you. As a Christian, if you sin, you make a mistake, which we all do, it should bother you. You should feel miserable at times because you know that that ballot took place. You just took a casualty. You aren't just miserable. You're afflicted. You're enduring and bearing troubles, which seems greater than we can all carry. We sit there and we say, I can't believe I just did that. Right? So what do we do? Here's what happens. When people start losing the battle, they unplug from church. They unplug from their faith. They're like, I don't want to go to church anymore. I don't want to go to youth group anymore. I don't want to be part of this anymore. Why is that? Because the guilt and the hurt and the defeat is so strong, you don't feel comfortable in a place where you are forgiven. You don't feel like you belong there anymore. You've got some guilt and misery going on. You avoid other Christians. You avoid church. You avoid places that are going to help you. And Paul says this, Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? So he's asking this question. There's a war going on, and I don't want to be a slave to sin. And oh, what a miserable man I am because I'm doing the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I should do. Who's going to free me? from this life that's being dominated by sin and death. See, when I'm a slave to sin, I'm living according to my flesh. A life that's dominated and dictated by the desires of sinful human nature, instead of living that life that's being dominated and dictated by the love of God. And Paul asks that question. He, he lets the audience ponder. So why don't you do this for a second with me? Just ponder that question. Just ask that question. 
who will free me from a life dominated by sin? Church, who can free you from a life dominated by sin? Just think about it. Just think about it. I'm not going to put up any subliminal messages up on the screen, but just think about who can free you from this life dominated by sin. Anybody have an answer? Let's look in the scripture, okay? We're going to say this together, okay? So let's get in chapter 7, verse 25. Now, I'm going to read out the New Living Translation, and some of you, you know, we might have maybe worded differently, but he's going to say this, okay? He goes, thank God, okay? The answer is in who? Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's say that together. Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's the answer. Paul is struggling. He's looking for the answer, and he's got it. In those flashback moments, think about this. You're in seventh grade. You're taking a math test. I don't know what the answer is to number seven, right? When you're in a predicament, you think there's no solution. Let me tell you something. There is an answer to number seven, and there is an answer to your predicament, and there's an answer that Paul's saying here, listen, I'll give you the answer. It's Jesus Christ. Now, if you're taking a math test and you get to number seven, you don't know, please don't write down Jesus Christ, okay? That probably won't fly with your math teacher. But when we sin, when we fall short, when we make mistakes, thank God there is an answer. Jesus Christ. One who delivers. Jesus Christ. So you see how it is in my mind. I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin. Paul wraps up that chapter there. But I come back to what he said at the very beginning of that verse. Thank God the answer is Jesus Christ. He's my deliverer. I can't remember the lady who sings uh, my deliverer. Okay, Some of you are like, oh, I know who that is. Okay, Just go listen to it. Okay, Listen to it with a new thought. How he delivers, how he rescues, how he is the answer. Dan's going to throw up four references up on the screen right now. Matthew chapter 6, verse 13. I'll read these verses to you. Jesus was praying in his prayer. And part of his prayer, and lead us not into temptation, right? But what? Deliver us from the evil one. Heavenly Father, be our deliverer, right? 2 Corinthians 1.10 says this. And he did deliver us from mortal danger, and he will deliver us again. We have placed our confidence in him, and he will continue to deliver us. Paul says, listen, Jesus Christ is the answer. He's rescued us. He's delivered us from the past. He's rescuing us and delivering us now. And he will rescue and deliver us in the future. And he went on to say in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, For he has delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. He's our deliverer. 2 Peter 2.9, So you see, the Lord knows how to deliver godly people from their trials, even while keeping the wicked under punishment until the day of final judgment. He is our deliverer. There is an answer. And Paul gets excited about this. So he continues, and he goes on from verse uh, chapter 7, getting ready to write into that next chapter, continuing the penmanship, what he is being placed upon his heart by the Holy Spirit. Because he wants us to know there is one who frees us from this sin. Oh, what a miserable man I am. Oh, not anymore. Because there's an answer, Jesus Christ. There's one who frees us from sin. There's one who shows us grace. 
He gives us what we don't deserve. Freedom. There's one who breaks the chains that binds us to nasty habits. Some of us have some bad habits, some sinful habits. And Jesus, I want to deliver you. I want to break those chains. I want to free you. And I want to free you not just from those chains, but the chains of what? Guilt. Because we feel bad about what we've done. He frees us from the whips of the taskmaster. He's Jesus Christ, our deliverer, our rescuer. Now, Pastor Landon preached a great sermon last week. Him and Alexis stood up here and preached about the gospel, about God's love and man's sinfulness and Jesus Christ being our Savior and our responsibility to respond to that. What is our response to the grace of God? What is our response to the gospel? When we trust God's answer, who is Jesus Christ, there must be some kind of radical response. And, and I love it because Romans chapter 8, in my opinion, describes the radical response that he was starting to preach on. As I listened to that sermon last week, I was sitting in the back row, and I've been struggling over the last month and a half, two months. Okay, God, when we get down to this next series, what am I supposed to preach on? And I had about three things written down, like, should I preach on this? This I've been praying about. It's like, what do you want me to share with this church? It isn't like I just go online. Oh, that was a popular sermon preached by Andy Stanley. I want to share that with you guys. Okay? Or, hey, this is what happened to me on Friday night. Maybe I can share that on Sunday morning. Pray about, God, what should I share with this church? And so one of the things I was praying about, Romans chapter 8. I really want to preach through Romans chapter 8. Landon's up here preaching. And as, as I'm listening and he's preaching, he says, the gospel demands a radical response. And as he said that, I'm going, yes. A radical response. It's Romans. Romans 8. And I felt like, all right, God, check. I know what you want me to do now. Because here's the thing. We have to know what it means to live differently in this world as believers in Jesus Christ. We need to know what it means to live a spirit-filled life. Someone's like, spirit-filled? Okay, that could be different, right? No. Here's, we've got to get better at this, okay? We believe in the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We get excited about worshiping God. Oh, we love Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit, we're like, oh, that's the difference. We're just going to bring him down here. This is the Trinity. Three and one. Equality, right? They are different, but one. We can't take the Holy Spirit and say, a spiritual life is a little different. Spirit-filled is right up there with God the Father and God the Son. We need to know what it means to live a spirit-filled life. What does it mean to live a victorious life? What does it mean to live in response to the incredible grace of God? What does it mean to live a righteous life, to live right with God? That's all part of Romans 8 that we're going to be looking at over the next weeks, months. I don't know. We'll see how long it takes, okay? But righteousness is more than doing nothing wrong. It's doing something right. I can go to my sons here, and I can say, hey, boys, don't do this, don't do this, don't do that. And sometimes that's what we think Christianity is. But Christianity is, I need you to also do this. Yeah, I don't want you to do that, but I want you to do this. It's not just resisting temptation. It's going after God-given opportunities. It's going all in with God. It's, it's playing to win as opposed to playing not to lose. And as a coach, a lot of times I watch teams and, and, I, and I look at them like, oh, they're, they're winning, but they're playing not to lose. They're playing fearful. They're winning, but they, they don't want to lose. 
instead of, I'm playing to win. I'm playing all in. That's the faith-filled life that we're supposed to be living. Well, I'm getting by as a Christian. No, it's not getting by. God wants us to do more than just get by. He wants to live a righteous life. Pastor Mark Batterson said this, Potential is God's gift to us. Making the most of it is our gift back to God. Anything less results in regret. See, there's more to this life than just losing a war in our mind and battling sin every day. There's there's more to it. There's an answer. Jesus Christ, he delivers us. He frees us. His grace is incredible and amazing. And our response to his grace should be radical. In verse 1, this is Romans chapter 8, verse 1. This is the verse I'm preaching on today. This is it. So if you think we're going to get to verse 2, it ain't happening. Verse 1. Because I want us to understand this very first verse. I know you've heard it before. It's been preached in this church. We're going to hear it again. Here we go. So now, let me hear you say now. One more time. Now. Now. There's no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Now. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, now it kicks in. Now. Not tomorrow, not when I get older, not when I get out of high school or college, not when I get married, not when I have kids, not when I become a grandparent. Now, right now, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, right now there's no condemnation for those who belong to Jesus Christ. I'm not sure if you ever heard of a condition. It's called hyperthymestic syndrome. Hyperthymestic syndrome. Anybody ever heard of that before? I've not heard of it until recently. I was reading about it and... And uh, it's basically automatic autobiographical, wow, that's a mouthful, um, recalling of every day of your life. So basically, you can remember every single moment of your life, every single moment. There's a lady by the name of Joe Price, who she remembers everything since age 14. Can you imagine? You remember every moment in your life. I just, I just saw you roll your eyes. You don't want that. You know, some of us might, might, you know, studies suggest that 3% of life events are highly memorable. 3%, that's about what we remember, highly memorable. The other 97% of our thoughts, we just check out and we don't remember them, right? And some of you are like, some of your, some of your wives are looking at your husbands like, more like 99%. Anyway, Jill remembers everything. The final episode of the TV show MASH. She remembers, aired on February 28, 1983. It was a rainy day. Her windshield wipers stopped working, and uh, it was a Monday. You know, she remembers all that. You ask me, I said, I remember MASH. I have no idea when it, no, no idea when it ended, right? Some people think it's a gift, but here it is. It's a gift if you're trying to remember family birthdays and special things about people. That's a great gift, okay? Or if you're uh, going to be on Jeopardy, great gift, right? Okay? But think about this. There's a downside. Every mistake you've ever made, you remember. Every abusive moment, somebody said something, did something to you, hurtful, you remember. Every embarrassing thing you've ever done, you remember. That's not a gift after all, is it? And let's be real with this. When we sin, when we mess up, we feel bad. We feel like we've been condemned. We've been caught. I remember Pastor Landon used the illustration of going to the principal's office, right? We think God doesn't love us anymore because we messed up. We we feel that way. Because you know why? Because there's that battle going on, that war. You've messed up. 
you sinned. Our feelings, our thoughts go to war, lies in our mind. How could God love you after you did that? Christians don't act that way. What you did is unforgivable, and the voices keep piling in, the lies keep piling up. Maybe you're not really a Christian since Christians don't act that way, or how can God be loving and powerful both? Hmm, maybe he isn't. Why did God let this happen? Maybe God doesn't care about me anymore. And again, the thoughts keep piling and the lies keep building. And we start shifting the blame from our hurt and what we did to blaming God or blaming somebody else. And it's a battle and we're sitting in this, it's like sitting in a courtroom and all the false witnesses step forward. Rex is guilty of this, and I remember on such and such day when he did this, and I'm sitting there going, it's true, I remember that. And then the next witness steps up and says, I remember when Rex told this lie, I remember when Rex hurt that person, I remember when Rex said this, and boom, boom, boom. One witness after another comes into that courtroom, and I'm just sitting there going, I'm a failure. I've blown it. I feel guilty because of my sin, because of what I've done. And then Jesus Christ comes in, steps up to the judge, our Heavenly Father, and says, I've taken care of all that. He's not guilty. God slams the gavel. Not guilty. No condemnation. That's what happens. That's what happens. Because we feel so guilty and we're like, what's I Here's the problem with that. We start to define ourselves according to what we've done in our feelings and our understandings. What we've done wrong. And instead of defining ourselves by what Christ has done for us, we define who we are by what we've done. Because maybe somebody hurt me, this is who I am. Because I'm an angry person, this is who I am. Oh, I mean, this is who I am. And we start labeling ourselves, saying, this is the kind of person I am. Maybe we define ourselves by the hurtful things done to us instead of what Christ has done for us, and that's a bad place to be. I don't know if you remember uh, the book, Scarlet Letter. I remember 10th grade English. That was one of the books we had to read. And Nathaniel Hawthorne, if you remember that author, wrote this novel about a woman. She was found guilty of adultery. And here's what happened, and if you don't ever heard the story, she was required to wear uh, the letter A on her outfit, on her dress. And so she walked through town. Everybody knew what this woman did. She committed adultery. Big A right there. It's embarrassing. The guilt came upon her. The guilt, and you know, here she's wearing this, and I'm sort of sitting there thinking, we do the same thing sometimes. We don't actually put a letter on ourselves, but we label ourselves according to maybe something we've done and we've messed up. A for adultery, maybe a D for divorce, or G for gossiper, or H for homosexual. We put all kinds of labels on ourselves and other people. But that isn't how God sees us. That isn't what God does in labeling us. Isaiah 61.10 says this, I am overwhelmed with joy in the Lord my God. Listen, for he's dressed me. He's dressed me with the clothing of salvation. He's draped me in robes of righteousness. I'm like a bridegroom dressed for his wedding or a bride with her jewels. As he's writing this, he's saying, as a forgiven one, God's dressed me differently now. 
I don't wear an outfit with a letter on it that labels me. He's given me a brand new clothing, a brand new outfit. I'm a new person in Jesus Christ. So I dress differently. God forgives us. He gives us that new name, that new label. He gives us a new identity. He gives us a new destiny. But what mistake or sin have we allowed to define us, church? Where you're sitting right now, just ask yourself, have I allowed a mistake in my life, a sin, something, to define who I am? You haven't put a letter on yourself visibly for everybody else to see, but you still wear one. And you feel guilty about it. Two words for you this morning. God forgives. God forgives. He forgives us. Remember the answer? Remember Paul's answer? Oh, what a miserable man I am. I got this war going on. He's probably labeled himself. Paul probably had a big M right across his chest as a murderer. Oh, he was the one that was persecuting Christians, killing them before his life was changed. What a miserable man he must have been. Thinking that through and he says, praise God. The answer is Jesus Christ. So now, right now, there's no condemnation. Not guilty, church. When you ask for forgiveness, God slams that gavel down and says, not guilty. I forgive you. Remember the woman who was caught in adultery? She was brought to Jesus. They're ready to slap an A on her. Actually, they're ready to slap stones on her and kill her on the spot, right? They had condemned her. They passed judgment. They were ready to stone her. What does Jesus do? Let me, let me help you with this. Jesus does not defend her sin. Oh, that's okay. What you, no, he didn't defend the sin. What did he do? He defended her. He defends the sinner. He gave that woman a new letter, a new life. He took the A of adultery out of her life and he gave her the letter F of forgiveness. And he told her to go and sin no more. That's the grace of God. That's the grace of God, giving us what we don't deserve. And then he says this. So now, let me hear you say now. Now, now, there's no condemnation for those who belong to Jesus Christ. We need to understand that. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are no longer defined by what you did and what you've done wrong. You're defined by what Christ has done right, not by what you've done wrong. You're a new creation, and so is the person that's sitting beside you this morning. Sometimes that's hard because sometimes the people with us, close to us, our family members, maybe they've done something to hurt us, and we're like, but you know what? God forgives them too. We are a church here of forgiven people. We are new in Christ. And God delivers us, and in that courtroom, he gives that verdict, not guilty, we're freed, we're delivered, we have this new life. It may take some time to break some old habits and some sinful ones. It may take some time to build some new ones. That's part of the sanctification process of us growing and God's Spirit working in us. No doubt we've fallen short, we sin, we don't deny it, we can't ignore it, because if we do, well, then we depreciate the grace of God. We can't do that. So Paul knew this. His sin was nailed at the cross. When Paul's sin is nailed at the cross and my sin is nailed at the cross, praise God that God's hammer does not have a claw to pull it off. 
Once it's nailed to the cross, it's nailed to the cross and it's stay there and it's forgiven. That's just part of the gospel. That's just part of the gospel. Because again, the gospel demands a radical response. Our forgiveness is one thing. We belong to Jesus Christ. That's the other part. The righteousness of Jesus Christ has been credited to our account now. Jesus didn't die on the cross just to forgive you. He died on the cross to change you. Jesus Christ didn't die on the cross to keep you safe, but to make you dangerous and a threat to the enemy. When you stick out the, the tracks at your, at your business, when you talk to people and share Christ with them as you share those stories, he's a threat to the enemy. All of us are. Jesus Christ died to change us, to make us a threat to the enemy. Jesus Christ died so we can make a difference for all eternity. Every opportunity we have to work with little children, whether it's a nursery, children's church, Wednesday night, whether it's at a school, whether you're tutoring, you have the opportunity to touch a young life and share eternity with them with the love of Jesus Christ. Mark Batterson shared a story about an 80-year-old friend would come over to his house and um, he would stop at Burger King and pick up some Whoppers. And of course, by the time he got there, the Whoppers were cold. And he said it was always a little queasy, and those cold Whoppers. But he always wanted to talk to Mark about basketball because Mark was a basketball player. He said, can we watch some of those tapes of yours again? And he had these videotapes of when he played basketball. He made like tapes that he would send out to coaches to try to be recruited. So what you do is you take your highlight. That's your highlight reel, all the good stuff. He liked watching that. And he was always amazed. And he, he said he made this comment once to Mark. He goes, don't you ever miss? He goes, I don't think he caught on to the fact that I, that wasn't a full game. It's multiple games put together. And then he said this. Mark made this question and sort of posed it back. He said, isn't that what God does with our game tape of life? All the turnovers, all the missed shots. All the mistakes we've been made are edited out. It doesn't show up on the highlight reel. Church, listen. When you ask for forgiveness, when you sin, you mess up, and you ask for forgiveness, it's like God comes in your life and edits out all those mistakes, pulls them out. He said, this is your life now. It's new. But here's the amazing thing. He just doesn't edit out the mistakes and say, I forgive you. He edits in his righteousness. We are in Jesus Christ. And he comes in and is a part of us. God has given us his grace. Church, you're no longer condemned. So stop living in guilt and frustration. You belong to Jesus Christ. So let's live a righteous and let's live a victorious life. A righteous and victorious life. I'm going to give you two challenges. Okay, I'm going to wrap this up. Worship team, could you come up here? Here's my two challenges for you. First of all, Get a three-by-five card or something like that, something that you could put Romans chapter 8, verse 1 on and just write it out. So now there is no condemnation in Jesus Christ and those who belong in Jesus Christ. Remember that verse because there's times when you're going to feel guilty and you're like, you know what? He's forgiven me. And if you're feeling guilty and you're battling, it's hard to live victorious for Jesus Christ. Remember who you are in Jesus Christ. Remember that he has called you not guilty when you've asked for forgiveness. And that key, one of the key words in there, in my opinion, is the word now. Right now. It's so hard. We focus on the past and where we focus on the future. We forget, like, right now, I'm forgiven. 
So how do I live right now for Jesus Christ? I was working um, with a team this past week, stopped in to talk to them, and I took them a clock. And, but I, and I used to do this when I coached uh, volleyball at the high school. I would go in the gym and in the hallways of the schools, and I covered every clock with the word now. Uh, and so I did the same thing with this team. I gave them a clock that said now so they could put in their dugout. I said, here's the problem in, in, in sport and in life. We worry so much about all the mistakes we've made. It's hard for me to focus on here because, for instance, if I'm a baseball player, I struck out the last time I was at bat, or I dropped the ball, or I made an error. Well, I'm off the bat again. I hope I don't strike out again like I did last time. Where's my, where's my focus at? On the past. Well, I hope next week when I, or I hope in the next game, well, where's my focus at now? It's in the future. But I'm right here in the moment. I need to focus on right now. I believe that's what God's saying. Listen, listen. Your sins, your past, I forgive. Not guilty, no condemnation. And what I'm going to do through you in the future, you'll see. But right now, what are you doing right now for me in this moment? Now, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Jesus Christ. Get a three by five. Write it down. Make sure the word now is really big if you want. Okay? Then thank God for showing grace, for rescuing us, for delivering us. He is the answer. And if you forget that, right after that verse, put down here the answer. Okay? To remind you. He is the answer. He's our rescuer. He's our deliverer. Amen? Would you please stand? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an awesome God you are. God, it may not seem like any big thing for some of us in here, but Lord, I believe a lot of us certain times struggle with maybe some guilt or some frustration get mad because we messed up we feel guilty because we messed up or we know others who are struggling right now because they're feeling really guilty the problem with that is when we feel that way we drift from you and we forget that you're the answer thank you God that our answer is Jesus Christ Thank you, God, for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die for us, to pay for those sins that we couldn't handle. Thank you for rescuing us and delivering us from sin. God, thank you when we ask for forgiveness. You say you're forgiven. And we're proclaimed not guilty. What an amazing thing. God, thank you that we have this truth. We don't have to live in defeat. We can live in victory. God, you came through your son, Jesus Christ. Your spirit now lives and resides in us. God, I know you've got big plans for us as a church, as individuals. So God, remove the guilt, remove the sin that we've asked for forgiveness. Lord, remove those, those thoughts and those misunderstandings and those lies. Replace it with truth. Now, there's no condemnation for those who belong to Jesus Christ. Thank you, God. Thank you for your grace. We love you, Lord. We just want to sing to you now, Lord. Bless this time of worship.